Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. Now, to tell you something, people, I'm a grown man, but I can still not figure out one of those ceiling fans. I was sitting there today in the kitchen, and I don't even know why it's on, because Joanne's not here. It's a little bit cold in the, in the place. I mean, L.A. cold, and I don't need the fan on, but it's spinning on low, so I figured, you know, if you pull it three times, it'll stop. Well, no, then it goes to high, so I figured if you pull it once, the, the, the cord once, then it should stop, but it doesn't. The thing went on forever, and you never know when it's going to be finished or done, and it's just, I can't figure these things out, and I feel like a moron, because I know friends of mine who have little kids who can figure the things out, but I'm sitting there, and finally, it starts slowing down, you think it's done, and it isn't. So, someone should just figure out how to make a ceiling fan that has, like, little markings on it, because the cord, the pull thing, doesn't work. Anyway... We have a great show today. We have a we have a guy. I've I've known him probably since 1988 or 1990. He's a comedian. He's written books. He hosts a podcast about music. He's been in plays in Philly. He's written a play, I believe, and he's a uh, he has a great radio show out there in Philly. And my guest is Big Daddy Graham. How you doing, Big Daddy? I'm doing great, Steve. Uh, yeah, it's 94 WIC. Been there for 20 years now. Is that ceiling fan thing. First of all, my man, get a ceiling fan with a remote. That's the thing, too. The, the, virtually every ceiling fan you get today has a stinking remote, and we all know that we're guys, and we need as many remotes as possible. <laughs> so get one with a remote. And then, two, don't be concerned about turning that fan off. You need to morph in the Martin Sheen from Apocalypse Now. I've empty bottles of whiskey all over around the bed, you know, just be laying there unshaven, having a nervous breakdown. Why that ceiling fan goes around? That's that's living. That's, that's living. living too. Do you know? Do you know in that movie? In that movie, because I know you're a big movie fan. He in the opening scene, well, he was really drunk, but he also had a heart attack during the shooting of that movie. Oh yeah, it shut, it, it shut down filming for a while, and then on top of it. He was the replacement. They actually shot a scene or two with Harvey Keitel uh, when Francis Ford Coppola uh, decided he didn't want Keitel. Uh, and I've never seen that footage. <clears throat> I would love to see Harvey Keitel in that role. Uh, but uh, she did a great job with it. But uh, you think that footage would have surfaced by now, you know? Well, it's not. It's not, you know. It's funny. It's not like. Uh... Not like today, like everyone has digital stuff. I mean, you know how it is. I mean, to, back then, you know, it was film. And film was, you know, probably, someone probably has a one copy of that and just put it away. And now, I mean, you can't do anything without it showing up everywhere. But back then, you had to film it, then you splice it, and they probably put that, Coppola probably has that up in his vineyard in, under one of his bottles of wine. Yeah, he does, but my, what drives me nuts about it is I am the idiot who continues to buy every new version of Apocalypse Now that there is, you know, the deluxe, you know, one-month anniversary of it, then the one-year anniversary of it, now it's on Blu-ray, you know, with the deluxe thing. So I just, you know, I think they have this Harvey Keitel footage, and they have a photo of me on their wall. Yeah. And they're going, <laughs> when can we get Big Daddy to buy this? It's hold off another year, then I think we got it. <laughs> it's going to be a certain birthday. What are you doing, Cooper? Let me ask you something. You have this yeah. big, big, you know, big movie knowledge. You're an entertainer. What were you like as a kid? Because I, I, mean, I can see you as, you know, someone who was, who was an athlete. When did you start to sit there and, and start following this, you know, career of doing comedy and loving movies and loving music? I mean, what was like a little, well, a little, I, a little I, big daddy you know, like? I always you know, I'm old enough uh, as a kid to, you know, I, I grew up in southwest Philadelphia, which is a row home community, and, uh, you know, I think, I think I might be like nine, or, and this is hard to believe today, but like at the age of nine, I think my mom would just, you know, give me whatever it was, order or whatever, uh, to go to the movie, and, and let us walk to it ourselves. You know, hundreds of nine-year-old, ten-year-old, eleven-year-old kids walking to the, you know, matinee. You know, today you got to drive them everywhere. You live in LA, so you know that. But 
you walked uh, to movies. He said, I always loved uh, I always loved movies. Movies were always great, but when the, you're right, my whole life, like most boys, was preoccupied with sports, and I was I was a really good basketball player. I was, you know, one of the best in my uh, parish. <laughs> uh, I was one of the best players there was, but the turning point for me, entertainment-wise, uh, was when I saw The Who. Uh, the original electric factory here in Philly was all ages. They had no liquor license. And I had a brother who was six, seven years older than me, depending on the birthday, who was a brilliant singer, songwriter, guitarist, you name it, at the age of 15. So at the age of 15, he's bringing home really insane music that nobody else in the neighborhood is listening to, and certainly no other nine-year-old. That's how old I am, but we're sharing the same bedroom, right? So anything he played, I listen to. So I'm getting this really incredible music slash entertainment knowledge, and he threw my mother in, who had me reading heavy-duty books like in the fifth grade. Uh, It was all... All my education, I, I, you know, I have no college degree, you know, or anything, was from my mother and my brother. But anyway, my brother took me down to see the who. I don't know why. <laughs> no older brother likes to be with a younger brother. Right. But somehow I ended up on this thing. And I'm talking about the original who, this will give you an idea how old I am. Tommy's not out yet, right? Uh Tommy's going to be out in like three weeks, and all they did was kind of like a medley from it. That's how far back. This is the original four guys, Keith Moon, all that. Uh, and it just changed my life. I remember coming out of the, uh, you know, the electric factory, like some giant hypodermic needle came out of the sky and just shot me up full of all this energy. And I, and I said, I got to get up there. I somehow have to get up there where everybody's in the audience looking at me. I was really, really infatuated with that. I ended up more, I, I started off as a drummer, but I ended up morphing into doing stand-up, blah, 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 doing theater. But it all started with that one show, that, that, that Who show. I mean, imagine seeing those guys before Tommy's even out. Oh, yeah, I mean... They no. were young, they were... Oh, you know, oh yeah, young, violent, full energy. Yeah, I mean, I saw them on the on the trampled tour my junior year in high school. It was at the Spectrum. It was a year that people got trampled, and then that's when uh, Jones had taken Moon's place. But I remember going to see uh, the movie "The Kids Are All Right" at the Tower Theater. My mom drove us out there because we really wanted to see this movie. And but to see them live and just to see Keith Moon. And at nine, you're so impressionable. You probably were thinking, "What the hell's going on?" When you know Daltrey singing well, the that microphone. Point, at that point, I'm not nine. Um, I'm thirteen. Uh, it, I'm just saying, when I was nine, okay, I'm listening to early, early Dylan and early, early Who, you know, and all of that. Uh, but at that time, when I saw that show, but if there was ever one specific turning point, entertainment-wise. In my life, it started with that. It, it, they were, it was, I had never seen anything like it, and it just completely blew me away. And all I know was I said, I got to get up there somehow. <laughs> so, so now, yeah. then you decided to start playing drums at that moment, or what, or what, what was your no, not No, not right away. Uh, you know, both my mom and dad are dead, so, you know, in respect to them, I have to be careful with this. Uh, uh, my old man was he, he was just a drunk who sat at the kitchen table 24-7 and never said one word to anybody but my mother was you know really into reading books and loved music and all that I think my mother would have seen where my attention span was at this point and really really pushed me in the show business but it's just it's just not what you did in my neighborhood. Uh, in my neighborhood, it was about getting a job at General Electric with the Navy Yard, which I did, by the way. I did get a job at the Navy Yard. Uh, that, it, you just didn't think about a career in entertainment. And that's probably the case 
for most places on the planet Earth, you know, uh, unless you're in L.A. or Manhattan uh, or Brooklyn or whatever, but uh, it, it just it wasn't exactly encouraged. It wasn't like they were going, wow, look at this kid. He really knows. You can tell where his passion is. That's what he should be doing for a living. It, it wasn't that, you know, so it took me a while. It wasn't like I walked down to that Who show and said, I'm becoming a drummer. No, it, it took another, you know, eight, nine years uh, before I got fired from countless jobs okay. <laughs> where I finally decided, you know what, I'm putting a band together, which is what I did. I, I It was right out of the movie The Commitments. Uh, I just put this band together. I knew my man Spence Knightley, who you know very well, uh, was a great guitar player and a singer and a good front man. And, uh, there was one little problem. I didn't play a musical instrument. So I literally went down to this music store. They had a big drum kit set up on the second floor and went up there and to see if I could play them. I got 19 unemployment checks in one day. In one day. Uh, I got 19 unemployment checks because they screwed something up. I didn't have a freaking pot to piss in. I'm living in some piece of shit apartment and everything. So No car, no future, no nothing. <laughs> and what do I do with these 19 unemployment checks? I buy a brand new set of drugs. <laughs> uh, you know, just so I can get in this band that I'm forming. You know, so it, it didn't happen right away. It should have. I wished it did. You know, it's a... You know, many people, I love people going, you know what, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't do anything different. Whenever I hear anybody say that, I go, you're fucking lying. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know, now, it's true. <laughs> I, I, anybody who says, I will not do anything differently, is lying, Steve. They're lying. I, I, not, they say it, I don't know, to put forth this impression of confidence or... I don't know why people would ever say something like that. All I do when I go to bed is, you know, people count sheep. I count everything I've done wrong in my life. Uh, you know, every regret, every bad anything. It's all I remember when I'm going to sleep. It's, it, there's very few things I don't regret. Yeah, but you know, I mean, you, I mean, you've had a great career. But now, now, how did you start doing? Yeah, but now, oh, uh, 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 stop right there! Stop right there! A lot of people will say that to me, uh, and I think my career's been shit. I, I, I do, and I'm not just saying that. I do. All I ever think about is how my career could have been so much better. It's, it's all relative. There are dudes, you know. I'm in Philly. I never left Philly. You know, there are guys in Philly who would kill to have the career that I had. No doubt. Kill to have the career I've had. I've raised kids, uh, uh, you know, they, they've been through college, or one's married, and, and radio, all entertainment umbrella. All under the entertainment umbrella. But that still don't mean I don't think I'm a piece of shit. Yeah. Just because that guy, just because that guy at that moment, is a bigger piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to describe. Well, I think, I think we all go through that as performers. We sit there and go, what if, what if, what if. But then I think also when we sit there, we don't, I mean, and I think what happens is when you are a talented person, you always think, did I miss out? Did I do this wrong? Did I do this wrong? And we never really sit back and go, hey, this is pretty good. I mean, believe me, I go through the self-doubting. I go up, you know, to bed sometimes I go oh man I should have stayed and doing stand up should have done this and done that but then I go well my life would be different but we never know what our life would be I mean we could be dead you know we could have been sitting there we could have been at a show and the fans could have trampled like the who and then boom your career is over at 30 well, I've, seen, I've seen audiences that want to trample you Steve <laughs> I, 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 but I was there to hold them back yeah so now I got to ask you the, the comedy now because when you started doing comedy, you know Philadelphia didn't wasn't were you on the forefront of starting comedy? Because I met you at the Comedy Factory outlet when I worked the door there. I, I, I am close. Uh, I am close to being on the forefront. I'm about a year, maybe even less than a year. To give you an idea, when I decided to get into comedy. 
And and to tell you the truth, I I, I didn't. It, it was not my decision to even get in, in the comedy. It's it's. I always follow the money. Somebody makes me an offer to do something, and I go, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll do that. Uh, but but anyway, uh, what was your question? Quick, I forget already. No, you were. You said you weren't in the forefront of the comedy, but you were right near there. No, I'm 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 barely a year behind. When I get into it, uh, with the legendary Wid, kind of a name, Wayne Cotter is is kind of like already way better than everyone else. And Ben Curlin, these are names that might not mean much. Uh, well, Wayne Cotter would. Uh, he's had a, a great career out in L.A. Uh, they, they were just a little bit ahead of me. Don Marrero has already left Philly at this point. Don's a couple years ahead of everybody. Don at this point is already up New York uh, doing his thing. So I'm close to the forefront. Uh, yeah, I, you could say I am. It really explodes. I got so lucky. Well, how did you get? Uh, how did you decide to do stand up? Well, here, here's what happened. Uh, I was a, a, a government paid actor. It's hard to believe, uh, but I was. I got this gig at Society Hill Playhouse, where they got a grant from the government to find ten actors and actresses. No, a total of ten. And uh, you would rehearse these shows, almost vaudevillian in style. I did like Who's On First and all that. Uh, and every actor in Philly and New York, 700 people auditioned for these 10 spots because it came with medical. It, it was a salary gig. It was during the day, which meant you could still do what you really wanted to do at night. Uh, and somehow I got one of these 10 even though I had virtually no acting experience. I only heard about it at a bar. Oh yeah, they're having auditions for this thing. And it sounded interesting, I had nothing else to do. Uh, my wife, we weren't married yet, she kicked me out of bed to go to this audition, really I think just to get more room for herself in the bed. <laughs> you know, uh, so I went down and I got one of the parts, one of the 10 spots. In fact, it infuriated some people. <laughs> But you did these shows in elderly homes, prisons, libraries, playgrounds. You weren't doing these shows in theater. Uh, it, was a, it was the government's way of bringing theater to people who, when they get it, well, you, you're in prison. <laughs> but you're not going to the Walnut Street Theater. Um, so what the job really required was actors and actresses who had big balls who were willing to project and do these shows in the worst of conditions. Uh, you know, not in theater. And I think that's why I, I was big and brash and, you know, had balls and they, they gave me uh, one of these spots. And it's during the two years that I do this, before the program got cut, that I discovered I could make strangers laugh. Now, you've had great comics on your show, and that's one thing we all have in common. We're all funny amongst our friends because we know what will make our friends laugh. We know our friends' weaknesses. We know this one just had a chick break up uh, with him. This one didn't make the baseball team. This one you know, always has a car breaking down. So you know how to make these people laugh. It's getting on stage in front of a couple hundred people or a couple thousand people uh, that don't have anything in common. You have to find out what we all have in common in order to make people laugh. And it was during that two years with this acting troupe, and that's what it was called, troupe, uh, I quickly became the funniest person of the ten even though they were way more experienced than I was. And after like a couple of months, they started giving me any part that where you needed to be funny. So I found out I could make strangers laugh. Not doing stand-up, mind you. <clears throat> All right, so now that you really want this whole story, that program, that, that program gets cut. And I decide to put this insane cabaret show together uh, of me and a piano player. Uh, 
singing like TV theme songs, parodies. They're coming to take me away. It was a really cool idea, uh, and it caught on real fast. Uh, I couldn't sing, but it didn't matter because I was singing funny songs. The purpose of my songs was to make people laugh. The purpose of my songs was not for people to go, wow, this guy can really sing. No, it didn't matter. They were funny songs. And I quickly got this audience, a following. It was so bizarre. Uh, people came out to laugh at me in the beginning, but if they hung in there with me and saw, wow, this guy's got a real musical background here. I remember this song. You know, I would do stuff like war songs from the 40s, you know, by Bonds now, you know, it's crazy stuff. And uh, I used to get out of the Vita and do the drum solo on my chest with my hands where the piano player would leave the stage, you know, and I'd be up there and I would do a drum solo for 10 minutes on my chest. <laughs> and I quickly got this little following. And one night, somebody from the Comedy Factory outlet, uh, the comedy club thing is just happening. You got your Comedy Factory outlet, you got your Comedy Works, and the guy from the Comedy Factory outlet had heard about me, and he came around, and he said, hey, did you ever think about doing this in a comedy club? So what do I do? I go, well, how much would it pay me? And he said, well, we can pay you this. And I said, sure, I can do this <laughs> in a comedy club. And the next thing you know, I'm like, getting heavily booked in comedy clubs. So much so, now I'm doing shows at the Comedy Factory outlet, and every Friday night is hosted by uh, Morning Zoo DJ, John DeBella, and he makes a casual comment to me. I see did a song called Nuns. Right. Uh, about being raised Catholic. And he goes, you know what? It's, you gotta figure out a way to get me a copy of that. This is a long time ago before, you know, people are doing their own, you know, orchestra renditions and stuff in their bedroom. Uh, he goes, if you ever got me a copy of that or whatever, I would play that on the radio. And I didn't know how to make a record, but I just went out and made one. It was a 45 vinyl record. How did you make it? Where did you make it? Huh? How did you make it? Where did you make it? My brother, who, like I said earlier, was a musician, knew of this studio uh, that was very inexpensive. Uh, I, uh, I got uh, Ken Queter's drummer, this guy Eddie McCormick, and then, you know, I knew, you know, I, I knew some people, uh, and I just got it all together and paid for it myself and went in and recorded this song called Nuns, and it ended up being like, you know, this Morning Zoo's number one requested song for a couple months, and I sold thousands of copies of it. I couldn't print them fast enough. There's a regret. I wish I would have been with a real record label when all this happened. Had I been, uh, who knows, I, I would have been weird out Yankovic or right. whatever. Well, you know, just... Uh, but, but I wasn't. I was just this one-man thing doing it himself, but, you know, now, this morning show, John DeBella, well, they want another song. So I did another recording, and then I put out an album, and uh, I'm proud to say that there's scattered throughout the tri-state area, New Jersey, you know, Pennsylvania, whatever, there's over 100,000 copies, whether a CD, a cassette, a vinyl record, uh, of my stuff, which... Well kind of a big number for a local novelty it's, music you know, guy. It's a, it's a big number and what I always I, I always remember and I told people this you know now if you go to a comedy show everybody's selling merch but back then you were like the only guy selling merch and I still remember you'd be on stage yeah. and you'd go hey get your albums the Polish special uh, and you'd say that and you'd hawk it and after the show hey you cheap bastards and people liked you so you'd call them cheap bastards but back then nobody was was doing was selling them, and every show you would sell them. And I think it also the fans, your fans liked you because you know some comics would just sit and lurk after the show and not really want to talk. You were out there amongst the people, and people were buying this stuff. And that's the thing back then, people comedy was so big, and my listeners don't know 
how huge the morning zoo was. I mean, everybody listened to the Bella and Mark. Oh, they Shark. got they got a fourteen share uh, now that radio's broken up with XM and podcasts, and I have my own podcast, and my own regular over the air radio show. It, it, it's all broken up. No one, no one's ever going to get a fourteen share right. again. And so your it's popularity crazy. skyrocketed. I mean, that was the thing, and it so did. people were buying it, and you in the Philadelphia area. You became a household name. I mean, when you did comedy, you know, when I think I worked with you a few times at Mitchell's or wherever, you know, my friends said yeah. they were coming to see me. No, they're actually coming to see you. They're like, oh, yeah, after the show, actually, we, 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 we wanted to, or I see someone at a show and they go, hey, Coop, we came to see you. And after the show, they'd be like, oh, no, we actually came to see Big Daddy Graham. It was just a coincidence <laughs> that you were on <laughs> the show. Nice. And I'd be like, That's thanks, nice. guys. <laughs> so, they, so who I am now, uh, being booked at all these comedy shows and headlining them all, and I'm, it's a musical act. I actually have a live pianist. And then I dropped the piano player and went to, to tapes, uh, which was a big pain in the ass and all that. Uh, but then I started to notice there was a real uh, snobby attitude towards comics who did music or comics who did props. Uh, so I started sneaking in stand-up. Like if I was about to do nuns, the song nuns, I would probably do like, you know, five minutes that I slowly build up of Catholic school humor before I would actually do the song. And now I'm developing more and more stand-up to the point where today I don't even do music anymore. I have some people come up to me after shows and go, why don't you stop doing music? I just, I, 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 I have the time. You know this is a comic. Uh, you go on stage, you try new stuff. If it's a new one-liner, if it fails, well, then it fails. It took 10 seconds out of your show. Uh, but if I did a song that failed, a song being kind of like a minimum of two minutes, you know, if you have two minutes that aren't working, now you've just built a serious hole. And uh, I, I was doing so many other things now, the radio, the this, to that, that I just uh, wasn't prolific enough to churn empty songs. And I just started doing the same songs over and over and over again. There's a regret. I am so much better now on stage than I was when I was, you know, I'm still popular in this town and I'm still selling tickets. But at that point, you know, the whole comedy business is at its extreme height. And I wish I was as good as I am now, then. <laughs> I felt like that real hacky when I look back on all... Most of my shows tended to be almost exactly the same. I was not a good ad-libber, because I didn't start off as a stand-up. I started off as this musical guy. And then I ran out of time creating new songs so I eventually just slowly eased the music out. Well, now I do, you know, an hour in my sleep, uh, just stand-up. And I'm very proud of the stand-up uh, that I do. Uh, but that's how it all began. It began with uh, Clay Erie from the Comedy Factory Outlet coming over to the Kyber Pass Pub where I was performing, which was not, you know, not even a comedy club. And he was the guy who said, do you ever think about doing this in a comedy club? And that's, that's a huge first step. The, the huge first step is Society Hill Playhouse. Step number two is the Comedy Factory Outlet. Step number three is me recording nuns. That's the three huge steps for me uh, uh, that caused me to be, you know, you're saying household name. Okay, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty well known in this area. Uh, I'm not known by everybody, you know. I'm not Will Smith, who's from Philly. Uh, but there are three big steps that, you know, well, I guess step number one is to who. Uh, but as far as me personally, there are the three, the three big steps, the, 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 the huge steps. No. And, uh, and it's unbelievable. I mean, me and Conklin just did a show Two weeks ago, we had put together these two funny Philly guy shows, which we've been doing for close to eight, nine years now, and we sell out, you know, 700 seaters, 1,000 seaters, 
was just staggering to me. And Joe, we go, Jesus, we've been performing pretty much in this area alone for 30 freaking years. Hasn't everybody seen us 10 times already? Uh, how can we still be selling tickets? It's amazing. It is. It's not going to go on forever. I know that. Well, 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 for you though, when when you had that peak, you know, in Philly, when I mean, so when you when you were doing the music, when you first started out, and you became this really hot popularity, you didn't go on the road much, did you? Or did you go on the road? I know you would go to Yuck Yucks because no, I know no, I met I Donnie Coy through I you. The, I did. Did you say Donnie Coy? I met Donnie Coy playing Mitchell's because you booked him, and I worked with him, and I know you were oh friends God, with him. He's one of the great characters of all freaking time. I, I, nobody knows who we're talking about. He's the Don Rickles of Canada. Uh, it, it's what he does. He just, oh my God, he's brutal on stage and hilarious. And he makes a fortune doing like goth outings. Because people hire him and he'll go into these goth outings. I went to one of them with him once. Uh, where Joe Dyson and Lawrence Taylor were at it. This was in Toronto. And, uh, oh my God, he just would wipe up the room. But would go after the biggest, biggest stars. Uh, Donnie Coy, wow. Uh, no, I don't hit the road in any serious fashion to about 90, 90, 91. You know, at that point, I, I got a solid five, six, seven years where I'm just performing in the Philly area like every night of the stinking week. I, but then, okay, the morning zoo is pretty much done. Uh, I've oversaturated the area, and I'm not selling tickets uh, like I used to. And uh, I do have to hit the road. And I found out real fast I hated it. Oh, my God, did I hate it. I hated everything about the road. What, what was the biggest uh, thing you hated? I, I hated being away from my wife and kids. I, I just did. I hated it. But, you know, I, it's almost like I'm using them as an excuse. Uh, I think I would have hated it even if I wasn't married. I really do. I'm a homebody. I've never left Philly. Uh, you know, I like having my remotes to my TV with my menu options and my DVR. <laughs> uh, I, I just, I was terrible on the road. But tell me you don't identify with this. Uh, as much as I hated the road, I was, if, if I was, I remember even who the comic was. You know Pat Godwin, right? Yeah. Yeah, Pat Godwin, a brilliant uh, guitarist, humorist, hilarious. Uh, Pat Godwin calls me about something, and then throughout the course of the phone call, I find out that uh, Pat's in Jacksonville, working this uh, club in Jacksonville. So, you know, you're a comic, Steve. You know what the next thing I said was? Oh, yeah, uh, who's booking Jacksonville? <laughs> and uh, he goes, oh, I, I, I can get you in down here. They would love you down here. So I, I would book Jacksonville all, all for the pleasure, Steve, all for the pleasure of six months later throwing my suitcase on top of a bed in a Holiday Inn in Jacksonville, counting the minutes till I got the fuck out of town. <laughs> it, 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 it made no sense. Uh, you know, here I'm like, uh, uh, my pride and my male ego is like, well, who's booking Jacksonville? When in reality, I didn't want to go to Jacksonville. It was, I got stuck in this really weird thing going on. There are a lot of comics and entertainers get stuck in. They just don't know what to do about it. Well, I think, well, I, think I, I, I think what it is is we sit there and we go, you know what, hey, man, well, I can play that club. And you're right. Then you sit there and you go, why did I book that? I don't want to play that, but I just wanted to see if I could play it. It's like that girl that you may have dated years ago, you know, in high school, and you never, you never, you know, got all the way with her. And then you sit there and then you see her like a few months later and you you still want to try to hook up with her, even though you couldn't stand her. I mean, it's that it's that you're right. It's that ego. It's like you want it. You just want to sit there. You want to know that you can get booked in Jacksonville, even though in your subconscious you don't want to. Correct. It, it, you're exactly right. 
what's the old joke? Two comics hanging out, and one comic goes, uh, hey, where'd you work this weekend? Oh, man. I was in Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, this club, they, they put you up like in a barn with no heat. The lighting on stage was like one freaking light bulb. The sound system was horrible. There was there was nobody there. It was, it was horrible. Pause. Other comics. Oh, yeah? Well, who's booking it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it it's, so anyway, uh, I told you earlier in this uh, three-day conversation we're having, uh, I, I told you earlier that uh, I have a ton of regrets in life. Well, one regret I don't have, I actually came up with a plan that worked. It, it might be the only thing I've ever done that worked exactly the way I wanted it to work. Because I'm headlining all these clubs up and down the eastern uh, coast, really. You know, Roanoke and Richmond and D.C. and Syracuse and Rochester, Beck Carter, uh, I'm headlining all these clubs, and because I'm headlining all these clubs, uh, they're always arranging me to go on some morning show uh, on Friday morning. Hey, see Big Daddy tonight, club ha ha. You know, and you do your little stick, and they would give away some tickets, and that's how it worked. Well, I'm doing so much radio, and I discovered real fast how to be a great guest, which has come on. The host would go, do you need me to set you up with anything? And I would go, no, just say hi. And they would love that because it's less work for them to do. I know as a host myself, the guests that you truly love are guests that you you don't have to worry about anything. You just book them. And that was me. I, I, you know, they would go, hey, Big Daddy, how you doing? Well, not too good. You know, I, I had to take a cab to get over here. I would bang, 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 bang. You know, hit them with five straight jokes and be off and running. And I became very popular. My plan was, all right, I get this. How do I get off the road? I'll become a morning, I'll become a radio host in Philly. And I'll just perform in Philly. I won't even have to perform every weekend in Philly. I'll perform kind of when I feel like it. I had this whole big plan, and I swear to God, Steve, it all worked. It played out exactly the way I wanted it to play out, and now, 20-plus years later, I'm still doing exactly what the plan was. Now, now how, did, on the radio. how did you come about to be on WIP, and it's a sports show, and you do talk sports, but you also talk a bunch of different other stuff. How did that whole, did you approach them, or did they, did they hear the Big Daddy wanted to do radio? And then how did they sit there and think about your this niche? Is a, this is a great story. Uh, I was kind there's a, a comic impressionist in Philly by the name of Joe Conklin, and he's brilliant. He's, uh, he claims I discovered him, and maybe I did, uh, but he's brilliant. And uh, he was doing WIP once a week, on Thursday afternoons for like 10 minutes. He was doing it for nothing just so he could get the plugs for where he was appearing. He used to go on the Jody McDonald show. Okay, well, he gives me a call and goes, tell me what I should do about this. I just got an offer from another radio station that's putting together a sports program and they want me to be part of it. And I said to Joe, I said, I don't know. WIP, they're really entrenched. I don't see this other station working. Can't you take this offer and go to WIP and say, hey, look, I, I got this offer. I, I, I need money from you now. Or I'm going to have to go to this other station. And it worked. Uh, WIP said, well, we don't want you going, you know, to this other station. Uh, with this amount of money per year, work for you. And it did. So Joe turned the other station down. And the next day, the other station called me. <laughs> it was so bizarre. I never even thought about that. Because uh, I never thought I wanted to get involved with any kind of sports radio thing. Uh, and not, I love sports big time, like we all do. Uh, but I ended up getting the job that Joe turned down on my advice. And it was the right advice for Joe. And it was the right thing for me to do. I did... 12, 10 a.m., which had a huge signal 
for about a year and a half or two years, and then their format changed, and I lost my job. And three months later, WIP called me. They had an opening, and they called me in for an interview, and I got the gig. And 20 years later, I'm still there. Now, it was, was the original spot the late-night spot you have now? Always. Same spot. I've been in the same spot now uh, for 20 years. They allow me to sell my own advertising. Uh, I don't make a lot of money there, but because I'm there, I'm able to charge more money than other Philadelphia-based comics would ever dream of charging at a private function. Uh, and it's been a godsend for me. Uh, so I've been able to, you know, watch my kids grow up and go to all their games and, you know, make a living in Philly. Now, you know, there's probably 10 people, you know, born and raised in Philly that can say they made a really good living uh, without leaving town. When I say really good living, I, you know, I made, believe me, I make money, but nothing outrageous. But over the course of 25, 30 years, uh, it's it's very good, uh, and I've been. Uh, I want to say I've been fortunate, but I've also, in this particular case, made a lot of my own fortune happen. Uh, a lot of it was not by accident. Uh, but you know, I guess I got lucky. WIP had a break, uh, had an opening just when I lost the gig. You know, uh, that's kind of how it works. You know, so uh, no, no, how and, did you... and because I'm because I'm the overnight early morning guy, uh, they, they they don't give a shit what I do. Now, if there's a huge sports story going on, I honor the format and talk about that huge sports story. So anybody who listens to WIP can rest assured if they hit the button while I'm on that I'm going to be you know talking about the big Eagles game or whatever. Uh, but, you know, most of the time, I would say, you know, four nights a week, three nights a week, I'm, I'm talking about whatever lame brain thing. Now, if I want to do an hour on the Bisco Shredded Wheat, no one stops me. Uh, and my audience, they like that about me way more. In fact, my audience can tell when I get a caller that's making some obvious sports point that eight fucking thousand people have made already that day but they know I don't have the time for that uh, I, I want my listeners to be entertained and they're not being entertained by the thousandth caller making the same point uh, and I have very little patience for that and my listeners kind of like that because they at this point have very little patience for it uh, so now, most of my callers, before they even hit the number, know they have to bring something to the table. Uh, or I'm not going to have the time of day for you. I'm not as caller-driven as a lot of other hosts there. Many, if I had a nickel for every time, people would come up to me and go, I, I love your show, but I wish you didn't take callers. Well, it's because you talk about entertainment, and, and you put your... I know you're a big guy with lists. That's a big daddy thing. It's the lists. Well, you know what? It's funny you say that, because I've gotten away from that a little bit, because exactly what you just said, uh, that I'm a big guy with lists. And I've gotten away from that uh, as much as I can. I still do one. I still will put together lists. It's not like I don't do it at all. But I've gotten away from it because I felt like it was getting stagnant that you know maybe the list I was talking about you know wasn't as clever as it should be uh, there's only so many lists to come up with uh, so I, I've gotten away from that a little bit you know you still have to even though I'm you know a local yokel although that's taken on a new connotation with the internet um even though I'm a local yokel, I still have to change things up, Steve. Yeah, but the lists are uh, you know, good. I have to, you I... know, I, I have to change it up. And I felt what you just said, that listing. You're not in L.A., so, you know. Uh, I, yeah, I was. I, I did a thing called Big Daddy's Big List, 
on television for, oh God, at least 10 years and people really enjoyed them. But then like one show just kind of like stopped booking me a little bit. And I said to myself, I wonder if that's because they've grown tired of this list thing. Or whatever. So I, it, whatever. You have to continue to to switch your show up as often. Like last night, uh, I did, I would say, three quarters of my show was spent on talking about college endowments. Because Temple just went over $500 million in endowments for the first time ever. And my take on this was, why the fuck would anybody donate money to a university when you can take that same 10 million and donate it towards the Children's Miracle Network. Or really, universities charge 40 grand a year. Why do they need more money? You know, and it's like a game with these people. Well, we're up to $500 million for the first time. Now, there's a medical aspect to the college, and I found this all out last night. It does help you and I if there's a medical connection with the college because his endowment money goes to getting better people and they discover cures. But for the most point, in the end, what I got out of it was it was rich dudes who want to see their name on a library. Right. And that's why they're donating the money. Simple as that. You know, instead of giving money to the charity, they want to see their name on a library. And uh, I find that fucked up. Uh, but that's where the show went last night. And you never know where a show's going to go. I only brought this up as one of the... I go in the air with like a minimum of 15 talking points. It's a minimum of 15. And you throw them out there and some nobody has, nobody has any interest in. And some make, you know, every phone line light up with interesting calls, and then you have these nights where you prepare to do a show on something, and then a caller calls up and makes an outrageous comment that you respond to, and then the next thing you know, it's two hours of people calling up to complain about that caller. Right. (laughs) And it's beautiful when that happens, because now it's organic. And it, it, the show has happened by accident. So it's pure and completely honest when that happens. Uh, it's like a, a, a moron caller. I can't get enough of them, Steve. They're the best. I either want a caller who really brings something to the table. It's either fun or informative, or I want a complete raving moron. Because if you're in the car or you're home, and most people listen to talk radio in the car, uh, if you're in a car, you're literally screaming at your dashboard. Right. You've got the fucking moron. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and they want you to nail this guy or have fun with him. I tend to have fun with them more than I do nail them. I, I'm not Simon Cow, you know. I, I tend to have fun with them. And, and I go, whoa, 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 can, can, can we go back to your saying you like to have sex on a bed of potato chips? Let's go back to that part, you know. Uh, and my callers love that stuff. But again, you can't invent a moron caller. Right, because it, it doesn't they, sound... They have to, right, they have to really have it. Now, if they're real morons and don't mind the whole world knowing that they're a moron, well, then they become regular callers. You know, and they'll be on my show once a week. I don't book them. They just call. Uh, and I, you know, I'll push them ahead of people who called maybe ahead of them. Because I know how much my audience loves listening to. Now, besides the, the, the WIP show, you, you, you've you been doing this uh, podcast for Wildfire Radio with Spins Nightly. Yeah. How did that all come apart? And people, wildfireradio.com. I, they play me, I think. Today, I think they're playing me right now. I don't know. They play me once a week, but uh, Big Daddy's got a show. How can there. you be on two spots at the same time? It's the miracle of radio. It is amazing, uh, isn't it? No, how did you get on? How did you get with that? And what's that show about? They called me. 
uh, I think they were looking for a, a name to get their thing started. And they called me. I think they wanted me to do a comedy show. But I didn't want to do a comedy show. I wanted to do a music show. Here's where the listing comes in. Uh, and I, I came up with this idea, Big Danny's uh, Classic Rock Throwdown. Every week there's like a, like a topic. And we try to play the best songs that represent that particular topic. Uh, we recorded two shows yesterday. Uh, the best Christmas songs that were written after 1975. Most of your great Christmas songs are written before 1975. You know, there's, there's very few. Uh, you know, Adam Sandler's The Hanukkah Song and Mariah Carey and the Waitresses with Christmas Rapping. You know, uh, it was a lot of fun doing the research, finding these Christmas classics that were written after 1975. Uh, I will tweet something like that out, looking for great Christmas songs. Uh, written after 1975, and so many people don't see the word written, you know, and they'll go, well, Springsteen, Santa Claus is coming to town. I go, well, that's an old song. Uh, we're talking about, you know, so that's what we do every week. You know, we try to play the 10 best food songs ever, the 10 best songs to come out of the city of Seattle, uh, the 10 best songs with a color in the title. And the fun is, I'll tell you where the fun is. The fun is, is, is in the songs that don't make it. Because it infuriates my listeners. <laughs> how the fuck could you do a song, you know, about hotels and not have Hotel California? Uh, 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 you know, it, that's the fun of it. Because there's only 10. You know, that, that's the number I picked. And we, we make it into two one-hour shows. And we talk throughout the songs. We talk about the you know, uh, the history of the band and how the song was written and who's playing what. And, hey, did you notice the piano used on Roadhouse Blues? It's the same exact piano that was used on Good Vibrations. You know, stuff like that. that uh, I think my listeners love that kind of info. Now, now for the Christmas for the Christmas songs, I, it probably didn't make it, but in consideration, and this is one of my favorite Christmas songs, and you, you can barely find it. You can find a crappy video on YouTube was a, a singer from Philadelphia named Alan Mann, and the song was called Christmas on the Block. Did that get any mention? It's a great song. Is, is, that, is that after 75? I think it is. I think what? it is. I think it is, too. You know what? You are, you are so right. And he tragically died in a fire uh, at a very early age. That's a great song, Christmas on the Block. I can, and you can only wow. find you can only find a crappy video, like someone recorded it off MTV, and then I know the Hooters, uh, they they did a version of it live, and you can find that on YouTube, but you can't find that, and it's such a good song, and the video's a very great video, and it has a great message, and that's one of those Christmas songs that, you know, only people in Philadelphia know, and it reminds you of the Philadelphia Christmas, of when there'll be commercials. And I gotta tell you, Steve, I gotta tell you, the fact that we didn't play it, and we've already recorded two shows around that topic, the fact that we didn't play it speaks volumes over how much, unfortunately, the song has become forgotten. Right. Uh, I mean, my daughter Ava, who's now in the radio biz, she's whatever, 26. It, 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 she's never heard of that song, ever. Uh, it, it slipped and fell through the cracks because he died, unfortunately. Uh, it, it, but it is a great song. And, you know, the ironic thing is, Things knew him, uh, so I, I I don't know how that it might be before it might be before seventy five might be before seventy five but it was on MTV so MTV I don't know when it started but that was just I can't imagine it was before seventy five I can't either it has to be after seventy five it does the the oldest song we played was Father Christmas by the King love it which is which is seventy seven. Um, that was the oldest one we played. Uh, but no, wow. No, Alan no. Mann. Now, when can people hear your your, pod, your your podcast? Anytime they want. I bet it, where do they find it? Oh, just go to BigDannyGland.com. There's a big logo there. You click on it. You can, you know, we, we've recorded well over 100 shows with, with, I think, 
fantastic topics. If you love music, you, you will love this show. And, you know, we're, we're not making a lot of money off this. In fact, at one point, uh, I, I said to Spence, because often Spence has to drive up from the Jersey Shore uh, to do these shows. And I'll say to Spence, are we done with this? And he goes, no, I, I really enjoy doing it. And he's like my best friend, has been my best friend uh, since junior year in high school. We have now been sharing stages together for 41 years. Wow. 41 years. I was his drummer. And the first gig we ever did was Labor Day week in Seattle City, 1975. I didn't even think about this. I did a, uh, a gig at the Sellersville Theater, and Spins was my opening act. He's always my opening act. Because uh, he lives around the corner, everything about it's great. And, uh, and my sister was hanging with us backstage. And she said, you know what? I think this is, uh, this was last year, 15. She goes, would this be 40 years you guys have been sharing stages? Never thought about it. And he didn't either. It's just, we, you know, the way we work, it's always about where you book next weekend. Right. Uh, you rarely think, uh, think about where, uh, you know, or how long you've been doing it. You, you, you just don't, you know, uh, but it's, yeah, 41 years, me and my man. So, and like I said, the podcast is really a labor of love. Uh, do I wish somebody by now would have heard this podcast and said, you got to be doing this show on this serious channel, that XM channel, whatever. Yeah, I kind of hope that would have happened, but there's only 8 trillion podcasts out there. And I no longer have the energy uh, to make it happen. If I was 28, if I was 35, I am fully convinced that this music podcast we do would be known by all music lovers throughout the country. But I don't. I, I, you know, my my main energy has to go to uh, 94 WIP and. You know, I've just written a new play. Uh, you know, I, it, it, I just don't have the energy to make it happen, you know. Uh, and I said that to them when they called me. I said, you know, well, if you really want to make something out of this show, you're going to have to, uh, you know, do it yourself. I have time to come over here and do the show, do the research for the show, but I'm not going to have time to heavily promote it. Exactly. I do. On my radio show, but you know, I'm just being honest. That's my age now, Steve. I'm, you know, I'm older, and I, I just don't have the energy. You see that? To, you know. Well, I got to tell you, Big Daddy, you worried about talking an hour. That's almost an hour. See that? The Cooper Talk flies. That's why people love Cooper Talk. Give your give your contact info for my listeners. Well, geez, I guess the main contact info would be BigDaddyGram.com because that takes you. Everything else, you can follow me on Twitter at Big Daddy Graham, Facebook at Big Daddy Graham. But if you go to my website, that leads you to everything where I'm performing, what I'm selling. <laughs> Talk about merch. Exactly. Uh, what I'm selling, where I'm performing. There's a quick on there for the podcast. Uh, you know, that's the easiest way. Cool. In fact, when I do a commercial on my 94 WIP show, and the sales staff was like, you would have thought I invented the wheel. You know, most most uh, commercials, you know, if it's for whatever, <clears throat> they give a phone number. You know, and who's remembering that phone number if you're in the car? Exactly. You know, you, you can't write it down or whatever. So I will actually say in my commercial, you can get a hold of Steve Cooper, 555-7877. Or you know what, if you can't remember that number... Just go to BigDaddyGrand.com, and all Steve Cooper's information is listed right there for you. So people... And it just... And again, you think the sales staff at my station thought I invented the wheel with that simple little move. You know, now I hear way more people doing it, because it's a smart way to go. Exactly. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, Big Daddy. It's good to talk to you. 
Oh, wait a minute. I got, a, I got another hour. Yeah. People, I bet we could do another hour. People, check them out at Big Daddy Graham. BigDaddyGraham.com. Go to www.coopertalk.net. I have 570 episodes up. Um, email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. At Coopertalk is Twitter. Uh, don't forget my low-sodium cookbook after I had my health problem. StopTheSalt.com. Buy that there. You can buy it on Amazon, but I make more money if you buy it there. So follow BigDaddyGram.com. Go to CooperTalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys soon.